potentially gaining so much information, um, letters, diaries, bills, receipts, plant lists, catalogues, you name it, it was down there. And yeah, we had four days to clear the lot. We were Hello, hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 21 from Pot and Cloche Garden Podcasts. I'm Joff Elfick, a gardener, freelance writer and garden speaker from Gloucestershire in the UK. My thanks go to the amazing Genus Performance Gardenware who are sponsoring this episode. Genus are an English company based in the beautiful Cotswold countryside. Their range is designed by keen gardeners who understand how the right sort of clothes can make gardening more comfortable and ever more enjoyable. As you all know, gardening is about kneeling and bending, stretching and walking and being outdoors in all weathers and all seasons. The clothes gardeners wear have to work for them in all activities and in all conditions. And this is what Genus Gardenware offer. Have a look at what they've got by visiting genus.gs. Sandra Lawrence is my guest today. She started writing about 20 years ago and writes mainly garden travel and heritage features. She's written about gardens and gardening for publications such as The Telegraph, Homes and Gardens, Times Weekend, The English Garden, Garden News, Hortus, Modern Gardens and British Heritage. And she was a finalist in the Garden Media Guild Awards in 2018. Um, as if all that isn't enough, she's also doing a research master's degree in history at Birkbeck. And in whatever time she's got left, um, she's found the energy to write 16 books and the latest one, her magnum opus, a new biography of Edwardian plants woman Ellen Wilmot. Miss Wilmot's ghost is what we're going to talk about today. Sandra, hello. Nice to speak with you. Thank you for inviting me on this. Well, thank you very much. Um, now, Sandra, your new book is all about um, Ellen Wilmot. Can you tell us a bit more about the personal life of Ellen? Um, the subject of your book. Um, she's had quite an extraordinary life um, and, and uh, she was born in what, the 1850s and appears to have come from quite a privileged background. Yeah, she was born in 1858 and she died in 1934, which means that she straddles a, a very um, tumultuous time in British history. Uh, and you could actually say that her life really sort of almost echoes uh, the, the fall and rise or the rise and fall of the British Empire because she experienced like high Victorian, uh, late Victorian times, um, Edwardian, um, the Great War, the not so roaring 20s and even the 1930s. And if you can imagine the British Empire coming to a peak in the 1890s, really, and then sort of slowly falling away during the, during the 20th century, that's sort of how Ellen Wilmot's life ended up. Um, you're right. She did. She did. She was born to to quite to quite a lot of privilege, but she was not um, super wealthy. The reason she became super wealthy was due to a not quite fairy godmother, um, who, who was actually her godmother, but just her aunt, a woman called um, Countess Tasker, and um, she used to give extravagant presents to Ellen Wild, well, Ellen and her sister while she was alive. But after she died, um, Ellen and her sister Rose inherited vast sums of money from her. Um, and then, of course, Ellen also inherited from both her mother and her father, uh, plus a load of um, property from um, mainly from in Worley, Worley Place in Essex, which is where the family ended up living. Um, but also she bought properties in France and Italy. So she had vast amounts of money. 
But unfortunately, she was never taught how to use that money. Uh, and because husbands managed that kind of thing. Uh, and of course, Ellen famously never married. So she was never taught how to do basic economics. Um, and so, she, and she was always used to money just sort of flowing into her purse. So she just spent it. Um, and in the end, she spent it all. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't quite the end. Uh, she'd spent it all pretty much by 1907, and she lived until 1934. So the second part of her life was in increasing poverty. And I'm very sad to say that most people that remembered her and left memories of her come from that second part of her life. So we tend to get this sort of weird down downer on her um, that she was mean uh, that she was cruel that she was unpleasant uh, eccentric when a lot of that can be explained by her situation later on in life though she was quite odd as well yeah, <laughs> um, yeah um, I mean that that fairy godmother her godmother you referred to I mean even from the age of uh, seven, um, Ellen was getting what a, a cheque for a thousand pounds a year, wasn't she? It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yes, she used to come down, and this is one of those sort of shaggy dog stories that people tell about her that is actually true. That she she did used to come down to breakfast on her birthday morning from the age of seven to find a, a lovely cheque for a thousand pounds on her plate. I mean, I won't mind getting a thousand pounds now. I don't know about you, but. This is a thousand pounds in 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 eighteen sixty five for a seven year old. That translates today as about one hundred and thirty grand. Very nice. Yeah, yes, um, like as you say, you'd settle for a thousand, but one hundred and thirty would do me nicely too. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very nice. Um, now, her name, um, or certainly the name of uh, Wally Place, um, is is attributed to a lot of plants, isn't it? Uh, or added, yeah. either a name, a lot of plants are named after Worley Place or, um, or the Wilmot family uh, name, if you like. Um, is it 200 or more that are attributed to? Oh, my goodness me. I suspect there were at one point. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not the world's greatest uh, expert on Ellen Wilmot's plants, but I think, yes, there probably were at least 200 that were named around her, either by her or for her. Um, a lot of the, the plants that have got things like Warliensis or, or, uh, or, um, or, the, or members of the Barclay family would have been named by Ellen after her friends and family. Um, the ones named after her are unlikely to have been named by her. I mean, she was, she was conceited sometimes, but not that conceited. Um, I th there's really a, only a few left that are, that are really named for her now. Um, but some of them are quite well known. Um, the obvious one being um, Eryngium giganteum, Miss Wilmot's ghost. Um, but there's there's others. There's, um, oh my goodness, the Ceristis stigma, Wilmotiana, which is, it seems to be in most people's gardens these days. Yes. Um, uh, and so there's there's plenty of them. Uh, I, as I say, I'm I'm not the, the world's expert. There are there are Wilmot experts that know more about her plants than me. But you do have a plant in your garden that's just come into flower. Yes, yes, well done. <laughs> I do. It's it's really funny because for years I've been trying to grow 
anything with Miss Wilmot's, Wilmot's name or Wally's name. I've tried all sorts. I had no luck at all. It was though she was passing judgment on me. And then yesterday morning, I got a single flower of um, Potatilla uh, Nepalensis, Miss Wilmot, a uh, little rose pink, beautiful little thing. And uh, I was so pleased. That's very exciting. <laughs> <Full> triumphs. <laughs> <laughs> now, when, when I knew I was going to talk to you about this book, um, I couldn't decide where to start. I mean, the book is just such a, 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 a wealth of information in it that, you know, do you start, start at the beginning, of course, sounds obvious, but um, what I think, and in, in some ways, I think that's where I would like to start because for you- It's a very good place to start. It often is. For you, um, it started, I believe, in a, in a damp, dark cellar in an 11th century castle. Well, I'd like to say it started there and it did sort of get there. But actually, for me, it started probably as a young teenager because uh, I grew up about two miles from Morley Place in Essex. It's just outside the M25. Uh, and as a child, obviously, I had no idea it was there because Wally was a it's a ruin and it was so overgrown that nobody knew it was there. You know, a few locals, perhaps, but nobody. It was just just like this jungle. Uh, but when I was an, an early teenager, um, they started a group of friends started sort of clearing away some of the uh, the undergrowth. And they used to have these open days for for people to go along. And I went along with my parents and my sister and I was just captivated. It's just like something out of Francis Hodgson Burnett, you know, the shattered hot houses and crumbling conservatories, um, mysterious holes. Uh, it was just brilliant. Uh, and so I fell in love mo first with Wally. Um, and it was only later when I decided to write a book that I started looking into in, in more, more heavily into Ellen. Um, but yes, it did eventually lead to some very exciting trunks in a basement. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, that's got to be a researcher's dream. So, OK, well, I'm spoilt for life. Yeah. <laughs> Let's fast forward then to these trunks in the basement um, because they had to get out, didn't they? There was, there was a bit of a time constraint. They had to be yes. out of the building. Yes. Well, what happened was when El when Ellen Wilmot died, um, her most of her personal possessions were sold. It took 10 days to sell her stuff. Now, that's not bad for somebody who was almost bankrupt. Um, but her papers were bundled up and taken to especially park in Worcestershire, which was the, the home of her sister who had passed away by this point, but her, her, her son lived there, Captain, um, Captain Barclay. And if you go to Spectre today, you can still see the beautiful garden that Ellen's sister created. Um, and then these papers arrived at, at the at the mansion and you know they did what we all do when you've got a load of papers that you don't know what to do with them but they might be a bit important um they they shoved them in the cellar um and where they became forgotten and they a few of them came out when a biography was written uh, about 40 years ago um but we're pretty convinced that they only saw a very small part of that um, a whole bunch of it was was discovered around 2013, 2014. Uh, that was sort of the mother load. Um, and I had to wait 18 months to be able to see that. Um, but 
while we were working on this material, um, it was decided that um, especially needed a bit of a redecorating job. And the best way to do that was basically clear everything out um, so that the, the conservators and the builders could get to the walls, really. And um, while they were clearing that out, uh, Karen Davidson, the, uh, the, the archivist at Spetchley, uh, went down for another look, you know, just to be sure, to the basement and discovered a whole bunch more trunks in absolutely disgusting condition. I mean, totally rotten, um, but potentially gaining so much information um, letters, diaries, bills, receipts, plant lists, catalogues, you name it, it was down there. Um, and yeah, we had four days to clear the lot. We were boiler suits, head torches, gloves, mask, and we just got in there and we were scooping great armfuls of letters and diaries and plant lists into third-hand bankers' boxes, and we're still going through those. Um, it's just going to take years. Yeah. Now, um, now this sort of uh, delving into these these trunks became sort of known as the, the Wilmot Tombola, didn't it? Because yeah. you, ne you never knew what you were going to get next. I never know what I'm going to get next, and we never know what we're going to get next. I mean, a lot of the time it's just more grot. We get a lot of just pulling stuff out, and it's a grotty letter and we can't read the writing and you know we will we, we work through it we I've got a, a lovely team of transcribers that are very keen and they help us trans transcribe and I can tell you that from I do it myself and Victorian handwriting is disgusting but we are working our way through those but and another time I could put my hand in and get a century old chocolate bar or a little screw of paper with some seeds in it, which, you know, no way are they ever going to germinate. Um, or once I put my hand in and I brought out um, a 1771 letter from the Empress Maria Theresa. <laughs> it, 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 you just never know what you're going to get. Uh, and that is part of the excitement. A lot of it's photographs, which is which is really wonderful. Uh, and, and do they, uh, do, do they, what's the word, not preserve well, but do they keep well in those conditions? No. No. Um, <laughs> I'll just give you a, uh, I mean, yeah, it, it, sometimes. Yeah. The, the, the trunks were in variously bad condition. The, some of them, the photographs came out actively wet. Um, and in that case, it was not too bad because we just peeled them apart um, and then laid them out to dry. But when they're damp, they, they've they sort of infused themselves together and they're, they're really hard to get apart without pulling the emulsion off. Yeah. Um, others have been eaten by silverfish. Um, we found two crates of glass plates that are just look blank. We can't see anything. Uh, we are keeping them though because that's photographic plates sorry that's photographic plates for people <laughs> oh sorry yes, yes. <laughs> photographic plates of course yes <laughs> i forgot they were dinner plates yes. uh we found some of them too yeah. um but no photo photographic plates we we save them though because there is a possibility that in the future i don't know some i don't know ultraviolet technique might be brought up that we might be able to see. I, I, we don't know what technology is going to bring us. Yeah. That might mean that we could see Ellen's pictures again. So although that if you hold them up to the light, they are basically blank glass. We have saved them. because There might be vestiges of something there. Who knows? Yes. Who knows? Yeah. We, we, there, there are, I mean, there's probably about 900 um, glass plates that are in good condition uh, that were photographed by a chap called John Cannell a few years ago, and they are excellent. Um, but mainly we're, we're, we're turning up prints these days, and 
they are invariably okay condition to terrible condition, but they, they reveal so much that we, we, we keep them all. Um, and we're, we're just in the process of trying to conserve them at the moment. We haven't looked at them all. We, we, we thought there was about 10,000, but I dealt with a thousand last time I was there. So I, I, there's many more than that. Yeah. Um, and I guess there's probably two or 3,000 left to look at. Um, and we haven't looked everywhere yet. There may still be more to be found. Wow. And ever since the book came out, I've been contacted by people who have more Wilmot stuff. It's oh, have you? Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, now, Warley Place, it was, it was almost legendary for its parties, it seems to me. Now, Fred, um, Ellen's father, was rather keen on putting on these great big parties. And in fact, one of them, I think he had 70 people where they consumed 36 bottles of champagne, seven bottles of claret, six bottles of sherry, a bottle of port and two bottles of brandy. Um, Thank you for remembering that. Without the <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I would have done. Uh, yeah, well, this was all part of Fred Wilmot's grand plan to marry his, his daughters off. Um, a lot of them were officers, weren't they? <laughs> yes, from the barracks down the road, Wally yes. Barracks. Um, I mean, he... he he, there was method in his madness that by breaking out the champagne and the cigars, um, he was making his daughters look very uh, wealthy and very uh, marriageable. Uh, so I think part, I mean, obviously he quite enjoyed a party. Like, we're not, I'm not disputing that at all. Uh, and recently I was reading a, a lovely entry in, 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 in his diaries from when the, when the family went to Paris. And <laughs> cheeky, saucy Fred, he, he put his daughters back in the hotel and then sneaked off to the Folie Bergère. <laughs> um, so, yeah, <laughs> he, he, he clearly enjoyed um, enjoyed partying. Yes. Um, and we haven't got to the bottom of that yet. There's there's still more to be found. Oh, is there? Because he, oh, yes, he, he was a bit of a diary. He kept a diary, didn't he, for about 10 he, years or more? He did. He kept a diary from 1880 until his death. But unfortunately, thanks to the vagaries of the basement, uh, we've probably only got about five of them. Uh, one of them, unfortunately, I picked up and I didn't realise how damp it was and it just disintegrated like a dunked biscuit in my yeah. hand. Um <laughs> And another one is so badly damaged that we only know what he was doing on Thursdays and Mondays or something like that. <laughs> and Mondays and Fridays, that's right. Yes. <laughs> so, but we, I, I, I've read some of them, but I haven't read them all because, again, his writing's terrible. Um, it, it's all being done, but it takes time. All of this, to do it properly, will take years and years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in, in 1897, Ellen and, in fact, some that everybody would have heard of, Gertrude Jekyll, were awarded the um, Victoria Medal of Honour by the RHS. Um, in fact, I think that was the first year they'd uh, come up with this idea. 60 people were going to be awarded it. Two of them were women. Um, but Ellen didn't turn up and it, uh, to accept her award, and it was seen a bit of a snub, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, it, it was. It's. I didn't realise until I started looking into it just how much of a snub this was seen as. I mean, it's mentioned in most of the horticultural journals that made a, a, a and it was mentioned two or three times in various speeches. There's one particular account that has a verbatim speech, uh, uh, including pauses for applause. So we we know what was said, uh, and they they were pretty 
offended by this, that she didn't turn up. And I suspect that this is less to do with her and more to do with the fact that the society itself had been in trouble recently. Um, there had been a lot of political infighting and it had nearly gone bankrupt back in, the in I think it was about early 1880s. Um, there would all been all sorts of mismanagement and bad stuff going on. Um, and they pulled themselves together and got themselves back into to fighting form. And I think they were trying to present themselves as this new forward-looking um, society. And by Ellen's not turning up, their grand uh, bid to make it look like they were modern and allowing women in um, rather fell flat. So I suspect that they were more cross about that than about her personally. Um, but the result was the same. They were pretty upset about it. Um, it's taken me a long while to work out why she wasn't there but uh read the book and you'll know yes well, you might know if i've got it right i might have i might have it wrong <laughs> i'm prepared for people to come along and tell me you got it wrong just show me the show me your workings out <laughs> now i've just mentioned gertrude jekyll and um she was friends with ellen but it yes. was it seems to me it was a bit of a complicated relationship i couldn't quite get a grasp on you're not were, alone yeah i couldn't you're get a grasp on it and I don't think any of us are going to get completely exactly what happened. As usual, we don't have all the evidence of everything. Um, but it does appear that I, 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 my, my money's on their meeting around the early 90, 1890s. Um, and it would seem not that Ellen fell out with Gertrude Jekyll, uh, but that her sister and one of their best friends fell out with her. And we don't know the circumstances of this. We've only got Ellen saying, um, I don't really know why I don't like Miss, 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 Miss Jekyll. She's always been perfectly nice to me, but she fell out with my sister and my best friend. Um, and, and so it, my natural inclination is to not like her, <laughs> even though she's being quite nice to me. Um, and I can see why that they might be a little bit suspicious of each other because, you know, there's that whole thing about one woman in a, in a, in a society in those days might have been discovered sort of rather decorative, rather unusual, but two, that starts becoming an invasion. So they're possibly treading on each other's toes. And it took a while for them to work out that they were okay about each other. And there is a moment where it sounds like Gertrude Jekyll has been running Ellen down behind her back. So I think it's a bit of six, one and a half, more like a pair of, I don't know, animals circling each other, trying to decide whether they like each other. And in the end, they decided they did. Um, from about 1904 onwards, they became pretty close. Uh, and certainly by about 1912, they were actively praising each other. By the end, Ellen was doing magic lantern shows about Gertrude Jekyll. Uh, and of course, she went to her funeral as well with uh, um, William Robinson. Yes. Um, and I know Gertrude was very keen to try and get Ellen to uh, write articles for the RHS yes. journal, The Garden. Um, I don't know whether she ever actually did, but certainly she contributed photographs, didn't she? Actually, it's, you, we, we, you, this, this is, a, this is a, a, a slight mistake here, uh, and it's un understandable to make. The Garden was not at that point an RHS journal. It was the journal that was started by William Robinson. It was just a magazine. Um, but when it failed, uh, it eventually, I, I don't quite know when, when the garden stopped, but 
the, the, the title was taken on by the RHS eventually. Uh, they're not the same magazine. So this was William Robinson's magazine. And yes, Gertrude Jekyll did want her to, to contribute. And she did want, because by this point, by about 1901, Gertrude Jekyll was the editor of, um, of, of the garden. Uh, and uh, she did invite Ellen to send photographs and, and, and write for her. But it was Edward Hudson, the founder of um, Country Life that really wanted to write for her, uh, for him. He, he, was, he was very keen that she would become an editor. Yeah, yeah. Except, and I've never understood why. Now, um, Ellen had a bit of a reputation, didn't she, for... Uh... Which one? Well... <laughs> Quite a lot of reputations. <laughs> <laughs> she had a reputation for carrying a revolver and, and, and wielding knuckle dusters. It's, I'm, I'm hoping this is true. <laughs> Yes, is it? <laughs> um, but the reputation was not for the knuckle duster. Uh, we didn't know anything at all about the knuckle duster. Uh, the reputation was for the revolver, and as far as I know, yes, that's true. Um, the it's first mentioned in Audrey Lievre, but uh, and sorry, that's the first book. Audrey isn't it? Lievre is yes. the first biography about in 1980, um, and unfortunately, there is virtually no citation in that book. So we don't always know where she got her material from, though I've actually gone through it line by line, asking myself, where did she get that? Where did she get, where, where, where did she get that? Um, Audrey did her work. She did her homework. Um, and she's, she, she says that she got this from the housekeeper and it looks as though she interviewed the housekeeper. Um, and I have no reason to doubt that she would have made this up. Uh, sorry, to, 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 believe that she had made this up. Yes. So, yes, I think it was absolutely true that she carried the revolver. Um, um, and certainly I found the knuckle duster in a trunk that had nothing but Ellen's stuff in it. Um, and I've spent a lot of time trying to work out whether it could have possibly belonged to another member of the family. And each, each time I go down a different avenue, I come to a blank wall. I'm pretty... I'll, I'll lay my boots on it being, being Ellen's, yes. And, and a but, little... Sorry, a little bit of the theory behind this is that she was having to sort of walk, as she ran out of money, she was having to catch trains and then walk down country lanes to get back home and so on. That She may have needed a little bit of protection to wave around. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is that obviously the first thing you do when you think of a little old lady, I mean, she probably would have been her, in her late 60s, early 70s. Uh, if you think of this little old lady tooled up with a, with a handbag full of, full of weapons, it, the first thing you do is laugh. I mean, so it's the first thing I did. But then when you look at the, the, the circumstances, you realise that this woman was having to walk to the station. If she wanted to continue in society, she had to go into town. She couldn't afford a carriage anymore. She couldn't afford a car anymore. There were no buses. So she would walk two miles up and down Wally Hill in the dark to get to these meetings, exhibitions, shows, whatever, and to stay part of society. When she was walking back, often around midnight, no street lamps, it was widely known that her house was pretty much empty. The butler used to stay with his, with his wife and his uh, uh, housekeeper quite often stayed with her daughter. Um, it was widely known that Ellen Wilmot was going home alone to a house full of antiques. Um, I can see but she might get... I mean, people have, people have uh, accused her of paranoia, but frankly, I don't think that's paranoid to, to, uh, to consider yourself possibly at risk. 
Um, so I don't blame her for what she did. Yeah. And, and the other thing, not only revolvers and knuckle dusters, but um, booby-trapped daffodils. I like yes. the sound of that. Yes. And I'm very proud to say that, yes, that was true too. Um, and again, for very, very solid reasons. Daffodil bulbs could, for, could sell for like 50 quid a time. You know, that's thousands in today's money. The same, if you imagine what people pay for snowdrops now, um, it's the same sort of thing. Um, and her daffodils would have been in, growing in open ground. I mean, you can put a fence around it, but frankly, it's going to be pretty easy. If, you, if you're a bulb thief, you can get in pretty easily. So she created this series of air guns that were uh, attached to trip wires. Um, and we know that she did because in the, um, uh, the auction catalogue from 1935, the equipment's there. It, it's, it's all it, air guns, booby trapping kit is for sale. <laughs> so we know that that happened. But it's absolutely sensible that it happened. The other reason we know it happened is because there's like memories from the village children who used to uh, deliberately throw things at it to set them off. <laughs> so, <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, so of yes, course. That, that's true. And you touched on it. That, you know, we all know from Galanthomania at the moment, the, the huge prices that uh, snowdrops are, are, are attaining these days um, and the lengths that owners of collections of snowdrops have to go to uh, to protect them these days, whether it be fencing, whether it be security cameras, lighting you know it, it all has to be done so it's not a surprise that she had to go to those lengths back in those days no but the yeah. word booby trapping is funny anyway and um <laughs> and again it's this old this whole sort of like oh funny little old lady doing all these these wacky things but i mean this is one of the things that i found about writing this book that a lot of the things that she's accused of um that are ending up being true i can sort of understand why she did them. some of them i can't but a lot of the st there's, and there's some stories that I think are patently untrue, but some of the best ones are true, and they have really good reasons behind them. Yeah. Now, some of the things are true and some aren't, because the very um, reason most of us have heard about Ellen Wilmot is because of her uh, this this story about her walking through people's gardens, scattering eryngium seeds behind her. But I think you've looked into it, and actually, the, uh -huh. it, it, it's quite a modern uh, phenomenon, isn't it? That's the yes. wrong word. The modern story. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's a very apposite story, isn't it? it? It fits the personality that we've been sold so well. This prickly personality throws seeds from a particularly prickly and invasive sea holly around uh, in other people's gardens. <laughs> but um, I think they all want to believe it because it's fun. Uh, but actually, I can't trace it back any further than 1966. Uh, in fact, I can't trace it back any further than 1980 when Audrey Lilly ever wrote about it, but I don't know where she got that from. Uh, certainly, it cannot go back beyond 1966 because in that year, Graham Stuart Thomas uh, wrote in her notes and queries, um, you know, does anybody know uh, why Eryngium Gigantium, Miss Wilmot's ghost, is called this. Now, there's no way he wouldn't have known that story if it was around at the time. Um, I mean, what is true is that Ellen Wilmot was a Gigantium, uh, an Eryngium fan. Uh, she got Alfred Parsons to paint it for her, um, and she photographed Eryngiums as well, though it's None of the ones I've seen look like they're Miss Wilmot's ghost. They just look like general eryngiums. Very difficult to tell with black and white photography. Um, so I think it. I think it's a story, but it's a sort of never say never one. I'm. I'm I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past. 
<laughs> but I, I don't think it's true. <laughs> so Ellen died in the 19, 1934. We touched on this at the start, and you touched on the fact that you used to walk around Worley Place when you were younger. Um, but what has happened to it since she died? Well, as I mentioned, um, in 1935, there was a big auction that basically sold everything. It really was an everything must go sale. Um, it was her house, her estate, her grounds, the contents, everything. I mean, just to explain just how granular this was, uh, the very last lot, lot 2158, was a heap of manure, which, I mean, everything must go. Um, and after that, Ellen's garden was for nefarious reasons, in my opinion, left open. And people came from far and wide with sacks and spades and wheelbarrows to basically loot the whole lot. Every last uh, plant that was movable went. Um, I think some people came back to get the bulbs later on in the, uh, in the, the next spring. Uh, and there are some things left, but very, very little. Um, the house was demolished for a new town and a sewage works, uh, which I'm very glad to say didn't happen, um, thanks to the Greenbelt laws in the 1950s. Um, but poor old Borley has suffered since then. Um, obviously, the, the new town never happened. It was then going to be a new village, and that didn't happen either. Uh, the, uh, the, the chap who bought it, the developer who bought it, um, couldn't sell it because it was not developing land anymore and there was no house on it anymore because he, de he demolished it. So he, he just basically let it go to sleep. And in the 1970s, his son started leasing it to Essex Wildlife Trust and a group of volunteers started sort of managing it a little, getting rid of some of the invasive plants, some of which Ellen had planted herself. I mean, that's the thing you have to remember that a lot of these plants that were invasive were brought in as very beautiful exotics. So I, I found a, a photograph the other day of Ellen's, one of Ellen's borders with a giant hogweed growing out of the top of it, <laughs> which was obviously the, the centre of attraction. And it did look very nice. But when you've got an invasion of that or of Japanese knotweed or bamboo, you know, it's, it's a problem. So uh, there's a dedicated bunch of volunteers who come in every Monday, come rain, come shine, come snow, and they look after Wally. But there's a very delicate balance because it's a wildlife sanctuary now. Um, there's always a delicate balance between disturbing the world wildlife and looking after Ellen Wilmot's memory. Um, I'm not sure they've completely worked that one out, but uh, it's a fabulous place to go to. And um, it must be a fantastic place to, to volunteer at. I don't live nearby, so I, I can't join in, but it is, it's a wonderful thing to do. And I applaud those guys. They, they do a really good job. Yeah. Well, Sandra, thank you very much. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic book. I've really enjoyed reading it. I mean, every sentence is sort of a testament to all the, all the research you've had to put into it. Um, um, but I mean, you, you're very open. You do point out you've had, you've had a lot of help. There's a lot oh of people. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the, the volunteers, the, the, the other part of the volunteers that I haven't mentioned, of course, uh, there's a huge group that I would vaguely call the Worley Place Research Volunteers. But basically there's, there's loads of people. It's not just at Worley Place. There's lots of people people that are very interested in, in a particular aspect of Wil Wilmot's uh, memory. So there's some people, as I mentioned earlier, that are much better on plants than me. I'm rubbish with Latin plant names, for example. Uh, there's other people that have looked directly into her daffodils or into her, her, 
uh, uh, irrigation system or, or the, filmy, uh, the filmy fern cave or something that have really narrowed in on this material. There's a woman who, um, um, Paula Sewell, who, who's particularly interested in, in, the, in her p- published photographs. And they have all been incredibly supportive and, and kind. And they've been very generous sharing their material with me too. So I can't for a moment say that this is all my graft quite a bit of my graft but not all of it yeah uh, and I, I really owe them a huge favor a, a, a huge debt of thanks well I mean ju- just to show how much work goes into a book like this there's over a dozen I think pages of uh, sort of acknowledgements oh, and, yes. e- and en- end notes that must have been a job in itself um, yeah. but uh, no it's a fantastic book Sandra um, and published by Blink I believe yes. is that right yes, yes. They're, yes. they're an imprint of Bonnier Ah, right. Yes, published by Blink. It's available now. It's been out for... Since May the 5th. Yes. Well, it was Chelsea time, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Just before Chelsea. Just before Chelsea. Um, So comes highly recommended by me. Oh, thank you. (laughs) No, it really is a super book. Um, So thank you. Where, if people want to... see a bit more about you can they find more information um well there's my website is sandralawrence.com um and i've got a blog at the eventgardener.co.uk or just come and see me sometime i mean the, I, I seem to be popping up at various talks and things around uh, around the country yes. and do come up and talk to me because i love nothing better than me than talking about ellen wilmot as you probably understood <laughs> <laughs> um so have you got a few few uh, talks lined up is there a calendar of events people can uh, look at yes I, I need to make that a little bit uh, more obvious but yes i should be talking at spetchley park gardens uh, on the 23rd of june um with karen davidson the archivist of Especially. We're going to be doing a double header talking about how we discover the trunks and how things happen behind the scenes at Spetchley. On the 24th of June, I will be at the, the Garden Museum Literary Festival at Chatsworth House. Um, I should be doing a talk about magic lanterns, I think, in July. Yes, that's for the Magic Lantern Society. Um, and then there's some, there's some events to, to mark the um, Ellen's birthday on the 19th of August. And rather more sadly, there's, there's another one at Spetchley Park on the 18th of August to commemorate the centenary of Rose Wilmot's death. That's Ellen's sister. And she died 100 years ago this year. It's very, very sad. Well, Sandra, thank you very much. Fascinating subject, it really is. Uh, thank, thank you for you. your time. Thank you and for inviting me. Well, good luck with it. We'll look forward to the next one, which I'm sure undoubtedly will be out imminently. Oh, it sort of is, actually. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Are you allowed to tell us about it yet? Yes, I, I've Go got on, a book then. coming out with, um, for, for, uh, with Q, uh, for, for the Royal Botanic Gardens Q, and Welbeck um, is going to be The Magic of Mushrooms, and that's coming out in August. Oh, fantastic. Well, that, that's a brilliant way to end. We've got something else to look forward to. Maybe we could talk about that at some point in the future. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so yeah. much for inviting me. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Sandra. It's a fascinating subject and something that must have really stretched your knowledge of horticultural forensics and puzzle solving to the limits. Well, that's it, everybody. Thank you for listening. Please do take the time to visit my sponsor, the amazing Genus Performance Gardenware. They're over at genus.gs. I can be found at joffelfic.co.uk or on Instagram as joffelfic. In the meantime, may your secateurs be well honed, your godmother rich and generous, and your cellar free from damp and decay. 
I'll see you next time.